<clears throat> well, good morning, Anthem. Uh, go ahead and if you have a Bible with you, turn to Philippians, a uh, book in the New Testament. And uh, we're continuing our series in Philippians, obviously. And in uh, this, uh, Philippians is a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And essentially, the, the whole uh, goal of Philippians is to help the believers at Philippi, the, the Christians at Philippi, to get a, a better understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. What, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have life in Jesus, to experience life in him and to know God and have a relationship with him? And, and in this first part of the letter, so far I've been looking at, Paul wants to first get across why you want a relationship with God, why you want a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, because of the worth of Jesus, because of the worth of Jesus. And so last week, Stan helped us see uh, that Paul says, it is because Jesus has given us a freedom that is even worth being imprisoned for. That there's a freedom that you can actually be put into a cage and still have a freedom where, where nothing in this world actually can keep you from being free in a spiritual sense in which what, what Christ gives you. But this week, what we're going to be looking at is how Christ gives us a life worth dying for. Jesus gives us a life worth dying for. This was captured for me, well, uh, not too long ago when I was reading a letter that was written by a, a wife of a pastor in China. And on the, on the, a few days after this pastor had been arrested and, re and removed from their home. And, and I want you to read this with me because I know that when I think of having a life worth dying for and having kind of this idea of, as, as Paul is going to say, this famous statement here in verse 21 of chapter 1 where he's going to say, uh, to live is, is Christ, but to die is gain. That there's this sense that even in the face of death, I would have gain. In the face of suffering, in the face of loss, I would have gain. And so when I remember when I'm reading this letter, it just brought it home to me because I think we often... When we read the Bible, we think, well, that's just people way back then, right? Some kind of like historical uh, personage, you know, some kind of historical story, but it's so distant. But this is someone who right now lives right on the other side of the globe. And, and listen to her words. She says, dear husband, last night I slept well. When I woke up this morning, I heard that you had been taken away. At that moment, my heart had great peace because I knew you had already prepared for this moment long ago. I haven't been able to sleep tonight. I'm sure things are hard for you right now, too. So I'll just accompany you in your sleeplessness. I want to tell you a few things in case you might see this. I know you must be worried about me because you've seen how much of a mess I've been lately. But I'm doing very well now. I've loved the Lord these past two days more than I ever have before. More than anything, my heart is joyful and at peace. At night, tears flow by themselves. But it is not grief. It's hard to say exactly what it is. I just spent a long time thinking about it, and I'm thinking to myself, why are you crying? I finally asked myself, aren't you willing to experience this tiny bit of pain for the Lord? My conclusion was, I'm willing. I am very willing, because I know that this slight momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal glory that is to come. I'm willing to foot that bill. So why am I crying? It might just be because I'm human, but you can completely relax. Crying is one thing. Finishing crying is another. I allow myself to cry, but I haven't felt the least bit of despair, so relax. Even if I look forward, I can't find any. Because sometimes I want to despair for a moment and grieve a little bit, but I really don't feel like it, so forget about it. I think the Lord has replaced that despair with his fullness. The little ones miss you. 
I told them missing daddy is normal. It would be strange not to miss him. If you miss him, then miss him. Little D then immediately said, after we fall asleep, we won't miss him anymore. And then he immediately fell asleep. Lastly, I want to say that knowing what I'm going to receive as a result of what I'm going through now makes me feel so much better. I really do thank our Father in heaven. His plans are most certainly the best. They cannot be mistaken. So what more is there to say? I will joyfully accept them. I love you. I'm going to bed now. This was written a few days after her husband was removed in the middle of the night by the Chinese government for picking quarrels and provoking trouble. That was the official charge. Not knowing if she would ever see him again. Not knowing if their children would never see their father again. In the face of that kind of pain, that kind of loss, that kind of suffering, in the face of it, somehow she's essentially able to capture what Paul says here and to look it right in the face and say, I still gain. I still have life. I still have joy. And I, I don't know about you. When I read that one, I'm like, I, man, I want to be like that. Like, I want to, if that, something like that happens in my life, I want to I have that kind of life that just no matter what, it can't be taken away. You know, because I don't know about you, but like for me, like if I don't get my cup of coffee in the morning, like me, I'm like, I'm like, where are you, Lord, right? How long, oh, Lord? I'm like, we're Psalm 88. Let's do this. Lord, where's my coffee, right? Like just, just, just the smallest things. And I just kind of crumble and fall apart. Now it's like, how do I have that kind of life? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. How do we have that kind of life? In the face of the greatest loss, the greatest suffering, the greatest trouble in life, and in the midst of it, I can say with Paul, gain, gain. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning, how to gain a life worth dying for. First, we're going to look at a hidden assumption, a hidden assumption that Paul's going to surface in the Philippians as he writes them, that often keeps us trying to find life in this world versus actually finding it in Christ. Then next we're going to be looking at why it is that often our lives are not like filled with this dynamic, especially as, as Christians, where it, we have a life worth dying for, but instead we're dying to live. Why is it that we constantly feel like we're dying to live? And then lastly, we're going to look at the secret, the secret to gaining a life worth dying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the fact that in the midst of this life, Lord, in the midst of all the things that pull at us and, and call us to life and the things that say, if you gain me, if you gain this, if you gain that, then you will have life. But Lord, we find ourselves exhausted trying to find that life. And so Lord, this morning, would you, would you help each of us, our hearts point us to Christ to see how we could gain life in him. Lord, we thank you that this is not just a good, a feel-good idea, just a technique, but this is reality, that you sent your son into the world so that we might have life in him. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, you give us Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the hidden assumption. Uh, remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. And, and he's in the middle of, at the beginning here, again, we're going to be in verses 18b. Uh, kind of cuts it off, interestingly, in the middle of verse 18. Uh, but 18b down through uh, 26. And so as we're walking through this, he's in the middle of addressing his imprisonment and, and addressing the situation. And he knows when he's writing to the Philippians as he's addressing this, that they're probably very concerned about his situation. 
and, and they're wondering, what, what should we do about this? And, and so he writes to them, and starting in verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, immediately, you can imagine when they're reading that, that this is going to address something Paul knows. It's going to provoke something in them that is their default. It's their assumption. And the assumption is when he writes this, because if I just stopped there, you would go, oh, wait, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying if you pray and, and you do spiritual things and you just kind of like are obedient or whatnot, but you, you look to God, then what will happen is I'll be delivered. And what do we immediately think deliverance means? It means he'll get out of jail, right? I mean, it means things will get better. It means that the story is going to have a happy ending and now he's going to walk out of jail, be free of prison and, and go on. But then read verse 20 when he continues. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul says there's a deliverance. It doesn't, I'm going to be delivered, but that deliverance may, I don't know, it may look like life or it may look like death. What he's saying is there's a deliverance, there's a life that I have, there's a freedom that I have that whether, no matter if I'm still in prison or if I even die, if I lose my life, I still have life. I've gained it. Now, why is it that Paul says this? I can imagine that there's this hidden assumption that they have that uh, you will, and I think we all have, and we'll go into that in a second, but we, we have this assumption that somehow God's deliverance, if God is good, what it means that in our lives, whenever difficulty comes, that what we should expect is that things are going to just get better. That we have this idea that if, if God is good, if God is who he says he is, then the whole story of the Bible, the whole idea of being a Christian, what it means is that tomorrow is going to be better than today, that it's going to be a better ending. That there's always a sense that's how we define deliverance. And see, here's the thing. In the Bible, there are no promises that says you will always have a happy ending. That if you're sick, you will be healed. There's no promise that says if you're in prison, you will get out and you'll be free. In other words, there is no definition that your life that you're seeking and you're trying to gain is something in this world. And that true deliverance is always that the story gets better. Remember, Paul's writing to say, here's how you can be a disciple of Jesus Christ and the greatest follower of God, the most obedient one ever, his life on earth ended on a cross. And so often what we find, if anything, in Scripture is that to follow Christ, it's going to look cruciform. It's going to look like a cross. Now, why did they at this point probably have this assumption if you remember last summer, we were going through Acts, and in the book of Acts, Paul, there's a story in Acts 16 where he recounts the story of planting the church in Philippi, probably about 12 years before this letter is being written. And when he establishes the church, if you remember, one of the main stories is that Paul and his friend Silas, who helped plant the church, they're arrested and they're put into prison. So they're in a Philippian prison, and when they're in this Philippian prison, then the church is praying, and they're singing hymns in the prison, and what happens? There's an earthquake, and then the, the, the doors fly open, and Paul and everyone, they walk out in freedom, and they're delivered from the prison. So you can imagine, when they're reading this letter, what they think Paul is going to say, just as before, in your midst, 12 years ago, when I planted the church, you saw how when you prayed, and when I, when I was singing and being worshipful, God op flung open the doors, and I was delivered, and I walked out in freedom. That's where that assumption partially is coming from. 
And I think in the same way today, we have, a par we have parallel assumptions. We have reasons that we think things will always get better. But obviously, probably for us, most of us have never seen somebody miraculously, you know, broken out of prison before. I'd love to see that, though. But we've never seen that. But at the same time, I think there is something parallel in our day to the word, like, to deliverance, which is the idea of progress. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because it's coming up again. It always comes up, especially around elections. I think it's part of kind of our narrative as Americans and really especially as Westerners. This is a modern Western narrative that I think we all build our sense of self and our identity and our lives and our assumptions about the world on. And that assumption is this. We, we say in things like this, the, the, the long arc of history, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I think that's the quote. That, that's one of the most famous ways that it's put. And so this is being popularized again. It was popularized by Barack Obama. It was popularized by Martin Luther King. And before that, he got it from a, uh, an, a 19th century uh, pastor. And before that, he got it from some old theologians. And so it's this kind of idea that we have this default that, the, that history somehow is getting better. And it's a nice, I mean, like the sentiment of it is beautiful, right? Like not knocking that at all and not saying we shouldn't pursue it. But at the same time, the, what we do is we just have this assumption out of nowhere that things will always get better. And the question is, yes, things do, as Christians, we say, well, don't things get better, Pastor? Yes, they do get better, but it's when Jesus comes back and heaven invades earth. There's no promise that in this life those things will get better, but I think because we live in a society where it's always kind of like progress, things are going to get better, it just keeps kind of arcing up, that trickles down from what we think about society around us and it trickles down into how we view our own individual lives. And we think that we're always just ascending, that the next step is just always getting better as if we will not age, as if we will not break down, as if we will not eventually die. And so we have this hidden assumption, this hidden assumption that things are always just gonna turn out for deliverance and always get better. And here's the real assumption under all of it, just to make it clear. We assume that things will get better in this life. We assume that there's something in this world when we're going through things, when we're going through the prisons of life, we're going through the situations that are difficult. We assume that there's something in this life, and if we could gain that thing, if we could gain, as for Paul, if he would gain that freedom, if he would gain getting out of, out of prison, and he would get, gain getting out with his head still attached and not getting beheaded, then he would actually truly have life. And so much of us, or so many of us, live our lives thinking that there's something out there that's elusive, that if we could just gain that thing, then we would have life. But what Paul's saying is there is a life that my life is rooted in that comes before this life that's deeper, that's better, that's truer. And if you have it, then you can lose this life. And when you do, you always gain that life. See, for, Paul forces us to ask, what if, what if gaining the things in life being healed, being freed, advancing, getting richer, being more successful, on and on and on, all the things that we tell ourselves. What if that is not actually what will give us the life that we're yearning for? What if God uses the troubles, the pains, the sufferings of this life, like Paul's prison, to open our eyes to a deeper life? a life we cannot lose, a better life worth losing this life for. See, what Paul is saying is, if you look for life in this world, you'll be looking forever because this life is not your forever home. 
You are not made ultimately for this world alone. But before we look at how we discover that life, how to, okay, good pastor, okay, so the hidden assumption is that we try to find life in this world, and, and we, we think there's something in this world will give me that deliverance, something in this world will free me and give me life, and, and, and then I'll be free, and I'll have life, and I'll be happy, and I'll be joyous, and something, okay, I get it, there's a hidden assumption there, so pastor, how do I get it? Before we get there, first we have to look at what are the things, what is it that's holding us back? What is it that's going back? So I want to do a little bit of assessment of our hearts, because I think while we rightly have an insatiable desire for life, that's something that God has given us. We're stamped in his image. We're not made, we're not creatures who are like, I love death. Like we're, we're creatures who want to live. That's stamped on us. We should want a life worth dying for. Purpose, meaning a deep, rich life. But we find ourselves instead dying to live. So let's look at that. Why are we dying to live? Uh, Paul goes on. And he's essentially saying, why can I make such a bold claim? You know, why can I make such a claim that even if I die, I still gain life? Why can I still say that? Well, then he comes to verse 21, the famous verse, when he says, For, because, to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that no matter what, no matter, if, if, if I lose everything in this life, if I, imagine this for you. Imagine if you, you lost your car, you lost your house, you lost your spouse, you lost your, you lost your job, you lost everything. And you're just kind of just there on the ground weeping. He says, I still have gained because I have Christ. And even then, if they, if they take my life, I still have Christ. Can you imagine being in that place? How can he be in that place? So I think what Paul is doing is, I was thinking about this this morning and so hopefully this is helpful. I don't know why. I was staring at my phone, because that's what you do at 5 in the morning. And I was staring at my phone uh, across the room, and I plugged it into the wall. And, my, you know, I woke up, my phone has like 10% battery left. And, and what Paul's saying is, essentially, in your life, you need to be plugged into a source of true life. And, and in order to have life, you have to be tapped into that thing. And if you're not tapped in there, then it doesn't matter you're dead, no matter your circumstances. But if you're tapped into that source of life, then no matter your circumstances, you will have life. So I was looking at my phone, and my phone's like sitting there on the floor into the charger, and it's like sitting on this white, soft, fluffy carpet thing that we have. It's really nice. It feels, it feels great on my toes. Uh, so it's like, you know, it's sitting there, and it's like, oh, like the lap of luxury. It's like our life. Imagine that's your life, and your, your situation is in the times of life where it's comfortable, times of life where it's just kind of like it's nice. It feels good, and, and, and life is going in, in the way you'd like. And so even then, if you are in that kind of context, okay, you have to be charged, though, to be getting life. But then at the same time, that same phone can be plugged in the same way, and it can be sitting on some mud, right? Or it could, be, it could be sitting on the toilet. I don't know. This analogy is getting away from me a little bit. But it could be sitting just in, in a horrible circumstance, in a horrible setting, in a horrible situation, and it still has the same life. And so what Paul is saying here is in your life, you're going to have things that come into your life in different situations. And the idea is if you're not plugged into the right thing, it doesn't matter if it's sitting on the carpet or if it's sitting in mud. Either way, it's dead. It doesn't matter if I've got like a bejeweled, you know, case on it, which I don't, by the way. But if I have like a bejeweled case on it or some ugly beat up case on it, if it looks good, attractive or not, it doesn't matter. If it's not plugged in, it dies. But no matter what circumstances, where it's sitting, its situation, if it's plugged in, it lives. And our lives, he's saying, are essentially the same. If we're not plugged into the right thing, if we're not plugged into Christ, we die and we don't gain. 
But if we are, then no matter the circumstances, we will gain. So here's the question. Why then, if Paul is saying that's what it looks like, then you can gain life no matter what, why is it that we're constantly dying to live? Why is it that we're constantly trying to find life? We're running ourselves ragged. In the Bible, it uses this term, it's, it's, it's idols. See, essentially what, what the Bible, it has this idea of in the, in the Old Testament, there were these little statues and whatnot, and people would bow down to them and worship them. And here's the idea behind them. The idea with idols was that idols represented some kind of a god or something in your life, and so you would worship that thing, do what it asks you to do, and it would make promises to you. So I'm going to worship a little statue, and it promises it'll bring in the rain, and it'll, you know, the crops then will grow. And so what, what in the Old Testament they would do is they, these idols, though, they would make promises, but they were broken promises. They weren't true promises. They couldn't deliver on the promises that they presented to the person. And so the Bible has this term saying it's idolatry. It's turning to a God that actually makes broken promises that don't come true. And when you build your life on it, when you put your trust into those things, when you find your life there, what happens is again and again and again you will be disappointed. And so the term idolatry is really helpful because in the New Testament, we, maybe as modern people, you're like, well, I wouldn't like, you know, worship a little statue. We have more modern, sophisticated forms of it. Things like power, control, affirmation. And so here's what I want to do because in our modern day, it's also helpful. And what Paul's saying is if you turn to those things, they will enslave you. You tap your life into that. It will, you will not only not gain life, but it will also run you ragged. And so I have a list of these, and I did this a few months ago. Some of you might remember it. You're like, oh, these again. And here's my pastoral promise. When we stop idolizing, I will never show you this again, okay? So when we all cleanse our hearts of all the idolatry, this will disappear forever, right? Uh, so here's, uh, the question is this. Where are you tapping your life into? As, as I'm going through some of these right now, they'll be up on the screen. But which of these I am statements do you resonate with? I have power and influence over others. If you don't, you go crazy. You do really weird stuff. I am loved and respected by blank. Man, that one, approval, idolatry. Uh, every, if you want to see this in action, just turn on the Lifetime channel, right? Uh, and you'll see what happens when this, how this works out in relationships. Because every movie on the Lifetime channel that I've ever seen at least, not that I watch a Lifetime channel all the time, but when I'm watching, it's like every single thing. It's like I want to be respected or I want to be known by someone. I want to have the approval of someone, the love of someone, especially in a relationship. If you idolize getting the approval, girls, of some boy, what's going to happen is that idol, when it doesn't give you affirmation, you're going to keep moving the line of things that you're willing to do to gain that affirmation. See, what happens, idols not only make broken promises, they can't be what they pretend to be, but at the, like the ideas of if I get that boy or if I get that girl or if I get that, that perfect spouse, then my life will be, I'll have gain, I'll have true life that will always be enough. Not only will that not be true, but also in the pursuit of it, you'll be so desperate that you'll be manipulated by it. You'll be controlled by it. Again, watch Lifetime. You'll see how that plays out. But you have comfort idols, right? That I'll just do anything to have comfort. We have control idols, independence. You can go on to the next one. You even have work idols. That what I do and what I make gives me my sense of self. Their achievement idolatry, right? Anyone ever feel that one? Americans, right? We feel this in the West. That if I achieve, I'm only as good as the next rung on the ladder that I can get to. And if I ever fail to get to that next rung, that's why we live kind of like I'm always going for the next rung. And what happens also, this robs you of a joy because you can never kind of like get there and go like, 
my goodness, look at where God has brought me. Look at the work that God has done in my life. We're always comparing ourselves with one another, tearing one another down to try to compete and compare. So if I can pull you down, I can get higher and I can feel better about my achievements. Just zaps us of joy. We can even have religion idolatry, materialism idolatry. This is why yesterday we did the financial workshop and we didn't just say, you know, the goal of this is essentially so you would just have financial freedom and then that would give you life. No, the idea was we want to steward what God has given us so that it would point our hearts to him. We want to use it as a means of grace to say, heart, I have all this stuff that God has given me. And guess what? His kingdom, he is more valuable than anything in this world. So I want to invest it in there in order to point my heart continuously to him. We have to constantly fight these things because honestly, we're all, in the, we're all in the top 1% of world history as far as wealth in this room. I have to constantly be fighting these things. You go to the next one. I think there's a few in here. By the way, just so you don't feel alone, I think I check off every single one on this list. So uh, as you're looking at these, the uh, thing is I put this list, there's a guide that goes with this series that we've been saying is available online. Um, that guide, it goes with each week, has questions. This entire list is in there. So I would encourage you, if you have not downloaded that. Um, it's on our app. It's on our website. It's also, if you sign up for our emails afterwards, we'll make sure that you get it. It's in there for this week. Uh, I would encourage you to go through this list and spend some time reflecting on what are the things on this list that really have a hold of my heart? Because here's the thing. Idols, again, are more than little pagan statues. These are the things that will begin to control our life. And not only do they control our life, but they will drive us to exhaustion until we collapse because they cannot ever provide what they're promising to provide. Some of you, if you were at the SALT conference in Nepal, you heard me tell this story, but just illustrate what this is like. Because I, I think that we often, we, we intellectually know that these kinds of things, they control our lives and they drive us to exhaustion. I think we intellectually all know this. I'm not saying anything probably new. But functionally, it's so hard to live as if it's true and to respond to it. And here's what it looks like. I, a few years ago, uh, still living in California, and uh, I don't know why I give that context for being at the gym, except for everyone at the gym looks amazing in California. So anyways, that's the context. So I'm at, I'm at the gym, and I'm like, oh, I got to get in shape. And so I'm trying to get in shape. And, and I, you know, run cross-country track in high school. So I was able to, I had, you know, I was like, oh, I want to rediscover, like I'm in my early 30s. I'm going to get back to like my 18-year-old speed, right? Because that, that happens. And so when so I get, on, I get on the treadmill, and I literally am putting the treadmill at like five and a half minutes, five 15-minute miles. Okay, so it's fast. It's like, you know, almost a sprint. So I'm running on this thing, and I just have this, like, my number one strength finder's gift, this competition, you know. So I'm like, I'm driving myself, and it's like, but there's this deep, like, I want to stay young. I want to stay healthy. I want to still be as strong as I've ever been. I don't, because, you know, you start, like, approaching age, and you start feeling it, and you're like, no, 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 no. I can fight this forever. And so I'm getting on the track, and I'm just like sprinting, and I'm like, yes, I can do this, right? Well, as I'm doing it, I'm feeling like, no, you can't. And I'm like, yes, I can. And my body's like, no, you can't, right? Well, as I'm running, all of a sudden, it's like I'm, I'm not keeping up with the treadmill, whatnot, and I'm like sprinting, and all of a sudden, I hear my foot catches or whatnot, but I can't keep up, and I fall, and I just like, bam, hit my head full on, hit, my body hits, and not only that, because it's going so strong, it just like flings me off the back. And I fly off, and I just hit the ellipticals, like, behind me, and it's, like, crumpled to the ground into, like, a pile, right? And so <laughs> the entire gym, of course, is just, you know, I can feel it. I'm like, did anyone see that? <laughs> right? And I can just feel all the eyes looking at me, and I'm just laying there like, maybe they didn't. 
And so I look up, and of course, everyone's looking at me. And I'm thinking, like, you know, then you start calculating, like, socially, like, what do I do? <laughs> do, do I pretend, if I pretend it never happened, did it never happen, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I went with more that approach. So I'm, like, trying to stand up, and I'm realizing, like, most of my body most of my body is on fire. I don't know where, like what's hurting or what, just my whole body is hurting. And so I'm getting up and I'm like, I'm just like, people, the guy comes over like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. Like this, this is part of my workout, right? And so I, so I get up on, and so the treadmill member is still going, right? So I get up on the treadmill and I like, you know, you know how you like get your legs on it and I'm like holding on to the things. And then I'm just, even though my knee is like on fire, then I'm like, and you know, everyone's watching this, you know, at this point, everyone's like, look at this guy. And so I get onto the thing and then finally I just, you know, jump on and then I start sprinting. And then the whole time it's like, because my leg is just like almost dangling because I can't feel my knee. Uh, <laughs> like I look, everyone's looking at me like, this guy's ridiculous, right? And which of course, with about 15 seconds later, I'm just like, okay, oh, done with my run guys. All right, cool. See you later. I get off. And uh, here's the thing. Here's why I tell you that. It hit me the next day. I was having a quiet time, you know, reading. I remember God just like saying to me, like, that's, that's what it looks like in your life. When you're just trying to constantly like sprint through life and trying to keep up, like these things in your life have you on a never-ending treadmill. And, and, and you intellectually know this, but they've got you running, they've got you sprinting to the point of collapsing because you just can't do it. You just can't be enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. You're not God. And because of that, at some point, you just fall apart. And more and more in your life, you keep falling apart, you keep falling down, you keep pretending like everything's okay, you refuse to accept what's happened, what the reality is, and you keep trying to get back up, and you keep getting back up, and you keep limping more, and you keep being injured more, and you keep being broken in deeper ways, and the whole time you keep doing, you just keep telling yourself, but I have to keep up. Intellectually, we know it's true, but functionally, we just treat, keep trying to run on that treadmill. And I'm telling you right now, for some of you today, that is a picture of your life right now. That something has got a hold of you, and every day you're like, I can't keep up, and you know it. And then you fall down, and you're, it's breaking you again and again and again. And you get back up, and you're saying, no, I have to be this. I have to be it, because if I'm not, then I'm not enough, and I have no worth, and I have no value. I don't have life. And every day you wake up with just knowing that you're, you're going to fail, but this is the only way to get life. This is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and who are broken, who are burdened. I will give you rest. See, it reminds me of my, one of my favorite bands, Judah and the Lion. They have a song in over my head. So success is an empty lie. So what's the point? It's that our purpose on earth, is that our purpose on earth by design? All this stressing got me confessing that I can't find peace. While I hydrate, caffeinate, medicate, repeat. I hydrate, caffeinate, medicate, repeat. I, 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 I'm in over my head. Some of us every day just waking up, hydrating, caffeinating, medicating, repeating again and again and again, just trying to cope. I want to give you words for it. You are dying to live. And that is not the life that Christ has promised. Christ did not die and walk out of a grave so that we would stay in the grave. So are you 
today is every day waking up and just chasing after some elusive goal, some elusive thing that you never quite get a hold of, this elusive thing that if you just get, you feel like then I would be able to say gain. What I want to look at, therefore, is how do we finally get off that treadmill? How do we get off that treadmill of disappointment? Trade that disappointment for discipleship. Trade that disappointment for life in Christ. Trade that disappointment for following Christ and, and having life in him. A life that we can save and in the face of death I gain. Let's look at that lastly, the secret to gaining a life worth dying for. Paul can say, for to live is Christ and to die is gain for one reason. For one reason. And that is that Paul, one, got off the treadmill and two, confessed that he is a sinner who can only find life in Jesus. He confessed that I, imagine Paul. Paul is the guy who's greatest theologian of all time, probably, you know, maybe not the best pastor of all time. His bedside manner wasn't the greatest. But he, greatest theologian, missionary of all time, famous guy, I mean, is in the Bible, right? So he, he's got all this going for him, and he's so well-known in the ancient world, yet at the same time, he doesn't build his life on it. In other words, Paul could probably run faster on the treadmill than any of us. You could probably, in certain areas of your life, run faster on the treadmill than me. You get what I mean? Things in life. You're probably better at business. You probably can earn more wealth. You're probably better looking. You probably have, all of us have these things. But here's the thing. Paul's saying no matter how good you are, you're not fast enough. You're not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough at the end of the day for you to anchor your life into that thing. See, here's the thing. All, all that list up there of idols, everything, those were all good. Many of them were good things. But good things, when they become a God thing, become a bad thing in your life because they control you and they run you into the ground until you collapse. And so Paul says, I built my life on Christ. And so this is why he says his self-definition, you could say, in Galatians 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The secret to finding a life worth dying for is to die and find life in Christ. There's no shortcut. There's no way around it. The way to find a life worth dying for is to die to yourself and find life in Christ. See, often what happens, and I just want to get tangible with this and practical, what happens in life is God gives us things like Paul's imprisonment. Things in our life that feel like a prison. We might not, obviously, f literally be in a prison. Hopefully not by your own doing. But you're not, you might be in a prison figuratively. Your health. Something financially or just the fact that you're not able to do something or whatever it might be. Some situation in your life where God brings us into certain situations of life that are like prisons. And what God is saying is, when these things happen, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying, if you will open your eyes and you'll stop trying to run on that treadmill, then I will open your eyes and I will see where you're not gaining Christ. And so let me break, like give you a picture of this. A few years ago, I was, I, I got incredibly ill. It was something that had an 80% mortality rate. I was bedridden for over two months. I, I dropped like 35 pounds in two weeks. My heart rate would not go below 130 beats a minute for more than two weeks straight. They thought any moment I'd have a heart attack and die. And this was on the cusp of, in the midst of it, I remember I was bedridden, I couldn't do, I couldn't do anything pastorally, I couldn't do anything for my kids. My wife was seven months pregnant with our third child. We just bought a house. Our kitchen literally had paint halfway up the wall and the bottom wasn't painted yet. Just stopped mid, right in the middle of this when I got sick. 
I just had two parents who had died within a few months of one another. I had been the, the guy who was the good dad, who was the good son, who, who was always there, who was always responsible, who always provided, who was always strong. And finally, I found that I couldn't be. And, and at first with this illness, I was just mad. And I was just, it's like I'm in a cage of my own body and I'm just railing against it every day in this bedroom. And I'm just angry and I'm just frustrated and I'm crying out to God. And I'm like, why is this? And suddenly then God's like, do you understand that what I'm doing is I'm helping you see where you've been running your life so ragged, trying to prove yourself to be enough for everyone around you. There was a what really hit me with this was there was a quote by an old Puritan. He wrote a little track on illness, and I was reading it. This guy's name was uh, Jeremy Taylor. And he said, and he said, God uses illness like this. What he does when you're sick is he slowly, the things of the old man, Colossians 3 imagery, of the old man that you refuse to take off, what he does is he slowly undresses you, gently. He removes those old rags of pride. For me, things like pride self-sufficiency, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm always like almost kind of this Messiah complex. And he slowly peeled those away until there's, and he says he peels them away until there's nothing left. And then he slowly through that process begins to put the clothing of the new man of Christ on you. See, what I learned was that in the midst of life's difficulties, instead of running from them, and instead of just telling myself the idea is just to escape this, to just get to the better ending, to just rail until that happens. In the midst of it, he said, will you actually, in that moment I saw, I've been running on a treadmill of trying to prove those things instead of finding those things in Christ. I never come to the end of myself so that I could truly come to the beginning of him. See, what God will do in the things in your life is, what I'm saying is the practical way to do this is when God brings things in your life, are you willing to say, when you fall off the treadmill and you realize you can't do it anymore, are you willing to look at it and say, that thing has been driving my life into the ground and it makes false promises? Are you willing to recognize it? And then after you're willing to recognize it, then you look at what is it, how is that provided for me in Christ? How is that sense of identity, that sense of approval How's it given me in Christ? See, I'm not saying that you're just like your duty as a Christian is just to die to yourself. And so every Christian, every day, just die to yourself and do the hard things. What I'm saying is Jesus gives you such a life, such an identity that all those things you've been running for on a treadmill, instead he says you're able to, you just want to run into the grave because you want to find him there when you die to yourself so you might have life. You don't have to live your life like, you know, Alice in Wonderland when it says, you know, you have to just keep running faster and faster just to stay in place. Instead, you can find life in Christ. And in him, he will give you an identity as a son and daughter of God. That then when you're encountering those things, you realize that it's not all I mean, but my life is in him. I'd encourage you to take some time this week. There's that idol list to look at. Go through like Psalm 139, something like that, when it says, search me and know me, O God. Begins the psalm that way, ends the psalm that way. Pray through that psalm while thinking through this list. Also, one of the things on your chair, this is all kind of in closing, on your chair there's a um, card. We talked about um, a few weeks ago, right now in this time of polarization, division, as we're dividing, that we should actually draw near to one another. That the work that God does often starts in our own hearts and our homes first. And, and so what we've done is just to kind of say, yeah, we really mean it, getting the meals. Is we just, this is just a helpful framework, five Fs. 
to help you just have intentional conversation with people and whatnot. And I would say when you, you look at that last one, it's faith. When you have people over, like, just bring out, I'm like, when you have people over at dinner, just be like, hey, thanks for coming over, and then bring out the list of idols, and be like, let's go over these, and look at which one is yours, right? Like, welcome to my house. Uh, but anyways, it might seem awkward, but it's like, ask people, like, hey, I've been reading through this and looking at this, and this is the thing that really, I realize just drives my life. What do you think drives your life? And, and then talk about, like, maybe things that I realize in this list used to drive my life, but thank God they don't anymore, because I realize this about God, and I have this now in him. And share that with one another. Pray with one another. Be intentional with one another. So I encourage you, one of the things with this is just bring other people into your life to talk about these things. So do that because the thing is, after all, Paul is saying if you're still in the flesh, as he ends in this passage, you still have labor to do. He's, God still has a work to do in you and through you. In closing here in verse 25, Paul said that I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says that even in life, whether I'm free and I remain alive, I am here for one reason, and that is your progress in the faith. Now, what's interesting is Paul is just back in verse 12, used the same Greek word to say in prison, that I am here for the advancement of the gospel. It's the same Greek word. What he's saying is two different situations, two radically different situations, whether it is in prison or whether it's free and with you, whether life or whether, whatever it is, if I'm still here, there's one purpose. And that purpose is to make Christ known, to see the progress of the gospel. You want true progress in your life? That is to see the gospel go forward. True progress is to go deeper into gaining Christ. And so Paul says, if you're still here, it's for one reason, no matter your situation, to advance the gospel, to know Christ, to gain Christ. So recap, check your hidden assumptions about how God is at work in the situations you find yourself in. How are you wrestling with the situations that you find yourself in? Perhaps he's delivering you from living and running your life on that treadmill. Die to yourself so you might gain Christ. So that with even your dying breath, when all else is lost, you'll be able to say with Paul, gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you because, Lord, I just... I feel it as, as a, a person in 2021. Lord, I, I feel it for everyone in this room. Lord, we feel the just every day waking up and feeling like the first thing we do is just jump on that treadmill. We run and run and run until we collapse. Lord, whatever it is for each of us, I know it's different, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the life that is in Christ. For each of us, whatever it is, whatever it has hold of our heart, Lord, that we would see how you are the one who satisfies it and that it's only satisfied in Christ. That he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, Lord. Lead us to him. Lord, help us to follow him. Help us to gain him. And Lord, even also, Lord, just knowing in that intro, Lord, I feel like I'd be remiss to not also right now just pray for those around the world in the church especially that the church in China, all the persecuted church around the, Lord, the, the world, Lord, where they right now, this, this calling to gain Christ, to lose their life, Lord, would you help them to see the life that they have as a life worth dying for? Strengthen them in their witness. Give their family strength. Give them joy in Christ. And Lord, would the blood of the martyrs water the seeds of the gospel. Bring revival, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.